We are launching a brand new series today on 1 Timothy, and so I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and open up 1 Timothy chapter uh, chapter 1. And um, I don't know about you, when I was a kid, I really liked boxing. I liked boxing. I did. I used to, back in the glory days of boxing, I used to love watching Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier square off with each other. Uh, guys like Ken Norton and George Foreman uh, back in the old days. Uh, I loved, loved, absolutely loved watching uh, Sugar Ray Leonard. Uh, he was an artist. Uh, but I used to love watching Sugar Ray Leonard, and uh, especially when he fought Roberto Duran. Uh, Roberto Duran was, uh, you know, they were not big guys, but they, uh, they could throw a big punch. And uh, I remember there's a story, I don't know if it's true or not, but it, it always kind of amazed me as a kid. There's a story about Roberto, Roberto Duran one time that he slugged a, uh, a donkey, uh, broke his hand, but knocked out the donkey. And so, so anyway, um, but I really enjoyed boxing. In fact, I enjoyed boxing so much, uh, I would occasionally get involved in a little bit of boxing in my neighborhood. And uh, my favorite boxing par- uh, partner when I was a kid was a guy named Joey Rushing. And uh, you, you need to understand that that uh, Joey and I we uh, played, we wrestled, uh, and then occasionally the wrestling would become a little bit more than wrestling, and and there would be a punch here and there, and it would just you know and it would escalate. And so uh, now Joey was bigger than I was; he was considerably bigger. So I came out on the losing end of a lot of those boxing matches, but it didn't keep me from getting another one with him later. Uh, but but Joey's dad, his dad was huge. I mean, like his dad was like way bigger than my dad. You know, he's big, tall, strong, very, very muscular. And uh, and he was one day he was out in his backyard, uh, their backyard, our backyard kind of joined each other. And he was digging these post holes and uh, and he was out there working, had his shirt off, big rippling muscles. Uh, meanwhile, Joey and I, we'd gotten into another boxing match, uh, and this day again, Joey got the best of me, and, uh, so I was really mad. I was really, really mad. And so I went marching home, I went marching into my kitchen, my mom and dad were sitting in the kitchen, they were talking, and, uh, and so I just, you know, when I came in, there was like, there was a storm cloud over my head, you know, thunder, lightning, everything. I come in, I'm dirty. Uh, and I'm sweating, and I got tears down my face and dirt on that, and I'm mad. And I, I tell my mom, I tell my dad, when I grow up, I'm going to beat up Joey Rushing. <laughs> my dad looked out at the window of Mr. Rushing, and then he looked at me and he said, Son, if you're going to beat up Joey, you better go do it right now. <laughs> so I called my mom this week. I told her, Tell Joey next time you see him, I'm coming to Little Rock. I'm all grown up. I'm going to beat the snot out of him. (laughs) Hey, you know, in our world today, there's a lot of fighting. There is. There's a lot of fighting over a lot of different things. Uh, There's a lot of fighting about things we shouldn't be fighting about. But there is a fight. There is a fight that you cannot walk away from. There is a fight you cannot run from. There is a fight you absolutely cannot avoid. And you've got to fight the fight. Now, what Paul told Timothy 
In Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1, he said, fight the good fight, keeping the faith. Paul didn't say, Timothy, if you can avoid it, avoid it. He didn't say, hey, Timothy, you should go lock yourself in your house. By the way, Timothy was not a fighter. Timothy was not a fighter. He's described as being uh, a very, very low-key person. Uh, Oftentimes struggled with timidity. And Paul tells Timothy, fight. Fight. Fight the good fight. Keeping the faith in a good conscience. And it was important enough to Paul that he begins the letter of First Timothy telling him, fight the good fight. And he ends the letter, chapter 6, fight the good fight of the faith. He begins charging, urging, challenging Timothy to fight the good fight. And he finishes again, challenging Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith. And we need to fight the good fight. Uh, This is not a fight against flesh and blood. It's not a fight against Joey Russian. Uh, This fight is not a, a fight against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual forces of darkness. And it's a fight that we cannot lose. It is a fight we will not lose if we are following Jesus in the wake of his victory. We're going to kick off this series, and we're going to talk a little bit about how to fight the good fight of the faith. Because that's what Timothy is about. Paul wrote to Timothy to to teach him how uh, they were to live life in the church but also how they were to fight the good fight. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And I'm going to read this for us. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter uh, 1, verses 1 through 11. And uh, I'm going to read this for you. Um, going to read this for you in the NIV text. So this is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. We will have it on the screen. I would encourage you to open your Bible to it because I'll be referring back to it from from time to time. But in 1 Timothy chapter 1, when Paul begins to talk to Timothy about fighting the, the good fight, he begins by saying this. He says, Paul, an apostle. That's the way they always began their letters. They didn't say, you know, dear Carolyn or, you know, dear Steve or Rudy. They, they always began with identifying who they were. And so Paul says this. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Now, folks, please don't let those words blow past you. These words are of great importance. Now, now when Paul is writing Timothy... He's writing Timothy with the expectation that this letter is going to be read in the church. See, Timothy knows that Paul is an apostle. And when Paul announces that he's an apostle, Paul is not timid in what he says. Paul says this, he says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command. 
by the command of God our Savior. It is not a church council that made Paul an, an apostle of Jesus Christ. It was not a church council. It was not by human agency. A church didn't sit around, talk about it, and then vote on it. That's not the way it happened. In fact, we're going to read more about this and talk more about this next week. And, and, but he, you can read about it in Acts chapter 9. When, 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 God, uh, when God our Savior commanded, and when Christ Jesus our hope commanded that, Christ Jesus, or that Paul was to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, literally they knocked him off his horse. He was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians and, and to, have them, uh, to have them beaten and imprisoned, in some cases to die. That's what Paul was doing. And God said, no, nope, i got another plan for you. Knocked him off his horse. That's the way he did it, just like that. Just thumped him with his finger. Knocked him off his horse, and he said, uh, by my command, you are an apostle. You are an apostle against your will. I choose you. Because that, that, at that time, Paul was not willing. Paul was not willing. But God chose Paul. Not because God needed Paul, but because Paul needed God. And he chose him. And by his command to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Verse 2. To Timothy, my true son in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace. From God, from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. Ephesus was a city in uh, Asia Minor, part of what we would consider to be modern-day Turkey. He says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, the northern part of Greece, stay there in Ephesus. Why? So that you may command certain people, not to politely ask, but command Command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command, Timothy, the goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some, these certain teachers, some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or or what they so confidently affirm. And then Paul says this, we know that the law is good if one uses it uh, properly. We also know that the law is made Not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. Now, what does Paul mean here? Okay? Uh, Let's think about it this way. Interstate 80. What's the speed limit on Interstate 80? 80. That's right. That's right. It is 80. That's why it's called Interstate 80. Everybody knows this. That's why when you go out on Interstate 80, you see everybody driving 80 and you drive 82. Right? Oh, no. I'm sorry. Uh, The speed limit is 65. Is 65. You know, that speed limit isn't for people who drive 65. It's for the people who are driving 80. See, that the, the law is not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful. 
the unholy and irreligious. For those who kill their fathers and mothers. For murderers. For the sexually immoral. For those practicing homosexuality. For slave traders. And liars and perjurers. And whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Let's pray, and then we're going to dig into this. God, today, uh, we want to acknowledge that your word is, uh, it is your command. It is your command, and it is for our good. And in God, we want to learn how to fight the good fight. We want to learn how to be able to, to spot the false teaching of false teachers. And we want to live by the truth of your word. And we pray this in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. What Paul wanted Timothy to do is he wanted him to be able to recognize false teaching. And he also wanted Timothy to be able to stand up against false teaching. He wanted Timothy to be able to to go to people who were teaching false doctrine. And he wanted him to have an eyeball-to-eyeball conversation with them. And he wanted to tell them, stop it. Knock it off. That's what Paul wanted Timothy to do. That's what God wanted Timothy to do. And that's what God wants us to be able to do. He wants us to be able to recognize false doctrine. And when necessary, he wants us to be able to oppose false doctrine. Now, in our church, I haven't met a lot of false teachers. uh, But in our world, there is a lot of false teaching. In the church in North America today, there is a lot of false teaching. And we need to be able to recognize it. And we need to know how to address it. So what did the false teaching in Ephesus look like? Okay. So if you read back through this and you look back through the text, uh, what you'll see is their teaching was based upon unreliable sources. It was based upon, um, it was based upon uh, myths and endless genealogies in verse 4. So their, their false teaching was based upon unreliable sources rather than the scriptures. And it, it promoted uh, what Paul calls uh, it, it promoted controversial speculations. Now, the exact nature of this, we're, we don't know entirely. Um, there are a couple of guys, uh, John R.W. Stott, uh, Gordon Fee, who have written a lot about this, a few other guys as well. And I've tried to learn as much as I can from those guys. So I'll try to share with you uh, kind of what they felt like and believed that that was looking like. We don't know exactly, but it's very, very possible. This looks something like what was... Um, there was a book called the, the Book of Jubilees. It was written about a, a hundred years before Jesus, and it, it came out of the, the Pharisaical tradition, and uh, and it has a lot of these fanciful stories in it, a lot of myths, based upon loosely on scripture, but a lot of um, a lot of exaggerated stories, uh, kind of pulled out of their context, uh, and exaggerated in ways that wasn't true. And so it's believed that that possibly what these false teachers were doing is they were relying on stories that came out of a Jewish tradition, but but they added to it kind of a a Greek twist. And that it was was based upon uh, stories, it was based upon people who were in the actual genealogies that we'd find in Genesis and other parts of the Old Testament. 
So we don't really know exactly what this looked like, but we know that it looked something similar to that. But their teaching was based upon unreliable sources, on 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 myths in, in endless genealogies, that, that their teaching didn't promote God's kingdom purposes by faith. Uh, that it, it was, uh, in verse 4, he says, they're, they're, um, that their speculations, their contra- uh, controversial speculations did not advance God's work by faith. So their, their teaching didn't promote God's kingdom agenda. Their teaching abandoned the priority of love that comes from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. That these men wanted to be teachers of the law, but they were ignorant and arrogant. By the way, when ignorance and arrogance comes together, that is a very, very toxic mixture. By the way, does that happen in the church world? Man, I saw something on Facebook a while back uh, from an old school buddy uh, that I knew back when I was growing up in Little Rock. His name is Joey. Just kidding. Uh, it wasn't Joey. It was someone else. Uh, but but I, I, I saw this, and I was like, and, and what he was saying was he just twisted Scripture in a way. I, I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, man, if you have a second-grade education, you should know better than that. And, and in my, th- my mind, I'm thinking, you are looking like an idiot on Facebook. Because it was such an exaggerated, twisted way of understanding the Bible, uh, that that it it was it was something that was ignorant, and it was said in a way that was arrogant at the same time. It happened in the ancient world. It happens in the modern world. Now, now calling something ignorant and arrogant in in modern in the modern day world is is kind of considered out of step. And yet, there is a time when you have to call out uh, false teaching. You have to call it out. Uh, otherwise, you just have to take First Timothy out of your Bible. Because it's something that Paul told Timothy to do, and it's something that God wants us to do, is he wants us to be able to recognize false teaching and to refute it. Um, uh, 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 more about this false teaching... In, in Ephesus, these men wanted to be teachers of the law, but they were ignorant and arrogant. Uh, apparently, they used the law, but they didn't use it properly. Uh, in verse 8, uh, Paul says, For we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. And apparently, they were trying to use the law as teachers of the law, but didn't really know what they were talking about. And, and they were misusing the law in the process. Uh, also, their teaching was contrary to the sound teaching, the sound doctrine, and did not conform to the gospel or, or glorify God. That uh, in verse 10, uh, that, that their teaching was contrary uh, to sound doctrine. Verse 11, that, it, that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So, real quickly here, uh, what does false teaching look like in our world today? What does it look like in the world today? And I'm going to give you four examples, four examples, and then we're going to talk about some lessons for life from this text. Okay? Four examples of what false teaching looks like in our world today. Uh, one example is something called relativism. And if you don't know what relativism is, uh, you probably do. You just haven't heard it called relativism uh, before. But basically what relativism says is this. It says that there's no such thing as objective Eternal, absolute spiritual truth. 
Okay? Meaning, you have your understanding of God, and I have my understanding of God. And we can't really say, this way is right, and this way isn't. Now, to people who say that truth is relative, this is what Jesus says. I am the truth. I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He doesn't say, I'm the preferred way for many people. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus says, I am the truth. He says, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. He says that of, of God, uh, he says that he, he, as he's praying for uh, his disciples and for us, he prays, God, sanctify them, sanctify them in your word. Your word is truth. And Jesus also says this, the truth will set you free. It's not your version of the truth. It's not my version of the truth that sets me free. It is the, the version of Jesus that sets me free. And so the world says the truth is relative. But the Bible says truth is absolute. It is eternal. It is unchanging. And I am the one who declares what is true. Uh, a second kind of false doctrine we see in our world today is this, is the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel. There are some people who say that, that the gospel is about more than forgiveness of sin. They say the gospel, the part of God's plan for you and me, is material prosperity. That God wants you to prosper. God wants me to prosper. Real quick, uh, if you're in First Timothy and you go over to chapter 6, and you look at, at chapter 5, and Paul, again, is talking about these false teachers. And listen to what he says about them. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of a corrupt mind. Now, you get the idea that, that Paul does not have a high opinion of these false teachers? Then he says this, uh, they have a corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. See, 2,000 years ago, the Bible was condemning the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel, it, what it does is it just subtly twists the gospel. To be about something more than what Jesus came to do, which was to save you and me and the world from our sin. Now, the Bible's not saying that, that having money is wrong. And when we get to chapter 6, we're going to look at this more. But the idea of the prosperity gospel, where we say that God wants to prosper people financially, goes against the teaching of God's word. We need to understand the vast majority of people in the early church were among the very poor. Not poor by our comparison today, but poor by the ancient world's comparison. And, and so uh, the prosperity gospel is a, a, a false doctrine. Uh, another kind of false doctrine we see in our world today, false teaching, aberrant teaching, is this. Liberalism. Liberal, liberalism. I can say that word. Uh, 
what I'm talking about here is that some people coming from, quote-unquote, liberal Christian traditions have abandoned some of the core teachings of Scripture. They, they've abandoned things like this, the Trinity. Uh, they, they don't believe that there is one God who's revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even though when you read through the gospel and when you read about the baptism of Jesus, it says to us, it, it tells us about how the Holy Spirit, after he was baptized, that the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And then the Father, speaking from, said, uh, from heaven, says this. He says that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The, the, the Bible clearly teaches us that God, God reveals himself in three persons. In fact, he tells us to baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. God has clearly revealed himself in three persons, and yet there are some so-called Christian traditions that have abandoned what the Bible teaches us about the triune nature of God. They, they have abandoned the belief in the virgin birth. Oh, it's impossible for a virgin to give birth to a baby. That's impossible. Well, with God, all things are possible. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Or there are some who've abandoned the, 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 the teaching uh, that Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead, bodily resurrection. Oh, that a, a body, a dead body, could come alive again? That's, that's a fairy tale. Well, it's not a fairy tale. Because the Bible tells us that, that there is nothing too difficult for the Lord. He has conquered death through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So liberalism, abandonment of core teachings of the Scripture. Uh, and then fourthly, uh, a fourth kind of aberrant teaching that we see in our world today is uh, what I'm going to call self-help religion. Self-help religion. That, that they read the Bible like a self-help book instead of reading the Bible as a salvation book. See, the Bible doesn't say you need to help yourself. The Bible says you're helpless to help yourself. The Bible says that you don't need self-help. The Bible says that you need God's help. In fact, the Bible says you need a lot more than help, especially me, especially me. I need salvation is what I need. I need a lot more than self-help. And so the Bible is not a self-help book. It is a salvation book. Um, different kinds of aberrant teaching that, 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 that subtly steer away from the truth of what the, the scriptures teach us. So what are lessons from this text for the church in North America today? Okay, four things. Number one, our teaching must advance God's work, which is by faith. Okay? So if the problem was with these false teachers, if the problem was that, that they were promoting controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith, it's very, very important. It's very, very important that our teaching advance God's work, which is by faith. See, that's what, that's what our teaching is supposed to look like. Uh, what does God's work look like in our world? Well, what does God's work lo look like? It looks like God redeeming his creation. It looks like God saving his creation. It looks like God saving lost sinners. It, it looks like... Uh, it looks like the church proclaiming 
that there is salvation. It looks like the, the church proclaiming that there is salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. That through him all people can be saved. That there is hope. That God's work looks like, it looks like leading people to Christ. And then leading people to maturity in Christ. Baptizing those uh, who are saved. And then teaching all people to obey all that Christ has commanded us. Um, so our, our teaching must advance God's work, which is by faith. Secondly, the goal of our teaching must be love. It must be love. In, in, in verse 5, uh, Paul writes, the goal of this teaching, this command, is, is love. It's love. But this kind of love is not just kind of a mushy feeling. Okay? It's not just kind of a mushy kind of sentimentality. That this love... Uh, is a love that has uh, it comes from uh, it, it, it comes from uh, it, it, it comes from a pure heart, a pure heart. Jesus said, "Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God." It, it comes from a pure heart. It it it, it comes from a, a good conscience and a sincere faith. That that the goal of our teaching must be love. The Bible tells us that we are to love God. Above all things, we're to, you know, Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbors yourself. That, that, that the goal of our teaching needs to be love. That God wants us as a church. That God wants you, God wants me to love one another just as Jesus has loved us. That means that, that God wants me to love you with the same love that, that, that Jesus has for me. God wants me to do that. He wants me to love you with that same kind of love. And he wants you to love me with that same kind of love. He, he wants us to be, um, uh, he wants us to be family. Uh, by the way, it, it's interesting when we get into to, to chapter 3, we're going to read that the church is the household of God. He wants us to love one another like family. And he wants us to love our families. Men, uh, this is what God wants for you. This is what God wants for every single one of you. And what God wants for me. That what the Bible says, it says, love your wife as Christ loves the church. That God wants me to love this woman right here with Christ's love for his church. The Bible says, it says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so God wants me to to love my wife sacrificially. God wants us to love our wives sacrificially, putting them first in all things. But the goal of our teaching has to be love. Number three, our teaching must use the Bible biblically. Okay, it must use the Bible biblically. Very, very interesting. Verse 8, Paul writes, we know that the law is good. If one uses it properly or some translations translate it as correctly. Uh, literally, the word here uh, means uh, it means lawfully or legitimately that we need to use the law lawfully and we need to preach and teach the Bible biblically. We need to teach scripture scripturally. We need to teach, preach the text According to the context, so that it is in, uh, we, we're using it correctly. Uh, the proper use 
uh, well, I won't get into that right now. But our teaching has to be biblical. Number, uh, number four, our teaching has to be consistent with sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel and glorifies God. That, that the part of the problem in Corinth is that they were using the law in a way that was contrary to sound doctrine, that did not conform to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God. And so our teaching has to be consistent with sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel uh, and that glorifies God. God wants us, and in, in Matt, the worship team will go ahead and come on back up here. What, what God wants us to do is he wants you and me to fight the good fight. He wants us to fight the good fight. There's a lot of fights we shouldn't be fighting today. There really are. There's a lot of arguing about things we shouldn't be arguing about. But there's a fight that we have to fight. It's the good fight. It's the good fight of the faith. Uh, To fight the good fight of the faith, we have to be able to recognize and confront false teaching uh, that's based upon useless speculation instead of the clear teaching of Scripture. And we have to recognize when false teaching is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel and brings glory to God. And we need to point people to the one and only one who can save us, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is about. Uh, let's pray. God, today, <clears throat> we, um, we want to fight the good fight. We want to, we want to fight the good fight, Lord. We want to uh, fight the good fight of the faith. We acknowledge that our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's not Republicans against Democrats or Democrats against Republicans. It's not black against white or white against black. It is not race against race. God, the good fight is the fight of the faith. It's not a fight against one another. It is a fight for one another. It is the fight, the good fight of the faith. It is the fight to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of all men. And so, Lord, we want to fight that fight and we want to fight it well for the honor and the glory of your name. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.